You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. I want to do a couple of things this morning uh, with our time together. One, I want us to relook at verses one through three, uh, which I intended for us to do because I knew there was going to be a break with me being out of town. Um, and so I want us to go back and kind of look through verses one through three one more time just to kind of remind ourselves of what's being taught there because it connects so much with what we're going to see through the rest of the chapter. And so I want to do that, but then I also want to kind of introduce what we're going to see uh, in the coming weeks with verses four, five, and six. Uh, But then I also want us to see how it connects even further down um, in verses uh, 12 and 13. Um, So we're going to kind of be all over that that, um, section of Scripture today, primarily verses 1 through 3 again. We're going to see how it ties in with verses 4, 5, and 6, but then even further down uh, into verses 12 and 13. So I want to read for us that entire section today just so we can see everything that we're talking about and studying in context of Paul's overall thought here. It says in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We talked a couple of weeks ago about this worthy walk that we're called to here in chapter 4, verse 1. We said that in response to all that God has given to us, so we talked about how 1, 2, and 3 is very doctrinally heavy, and then it shifts focus into more practical application in, verses, in chapters 4, 5, and 6. So in response to everything we've studied in chapters 1, 2, and 3, everything that God has given to us, we're to live with the purpose of maintaining the unity He desires for us by seeking to demonstrate humility, gentleness, and patience in our interaction with other believers. And so we talked about what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of your calling? It's how we conduct, it's how we conduct one's life, uh, the guiding blueprints for how we make decisions. And so uh, Paul's telling us that to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel is to walk with humility and gentleness and patience. And I told you it'd be easy if, if he gave us just a quick to-do list of things to do and things not to do. But instead, he gives us more of an attitude type of approach. This is the type of attitude or perspective you're supposed to have as a believer. And so these mindsets or character traits are what we're supposed to adopt and reflect upon in our interactions with each other. And so we strive to maintain unity. We're to be eager with maintaining this unity uh, as one body. And so uh, we're going to continue to look at that and break that down uh, together today. But I want us to Start by seeing why this unity is even possible. Why is this unity even possible for us to then strive to be eager about maintaining it? And so our summary sentence for today, because we enjoy commonality with other believers in our calling, in our convictions, 
and in our confidence, we are to pursue unity together by maintaining a common conduct in our interactions. Because we enjoy commonality with other believers in our calling, our convictions, and our confidence, we are to pursue unity together by maintaining a common conduct in our interactions. So we're going to see these first three C's, commonality with our calling, um, our convictions, and our confidence. Those things should be true of us. Um, If we're truly a Christian, truly a believer, then these things are true of us. And then that should then lead to this fourth C being true as well, a commonality in our conduct towards each other. The ways that we interact should be common because what we enjoy in our calling, convictions, and our confidence is common as well. Okay, so we're going to see what all that means today. Um, Here at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul is talking about how uh, we need to be eager to maintain this unity. But we saw back in chapter 2, verse 14, how... This unity has already been purchased and and provided for us. So if you go back to Ephesians 2, uh, verse 14, we saw what Jesus did through his work to make this unity possible. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, right? So we talked extensively in chapter 2 about how Jesus came to tear down these walls of hostility, to bring Jew and Gentile together, to to bring people from all different backgrounds and walks of life together to unify them around the gospel. Jesus accomplishes that. Jesus does that for us. Then we see in chapter 4, verse 3, that we're to maintain that peace, We're to maintain that unity because it's been given to us. And so Paul tells us to be eager to maintain this unity, to basically live out what has been given to us. But we also see, in another sense, that we have to attain this unity. Even though it's been provided to us, and even though we're called to maintain it, we're also called to attain it, to attain this unity as we grow in our understanding and realization of these components that unite us. So we go down to verses 11 through 13. Jesus has given us unity. We're to maintain unity, but then we're also to pursue a deeper unity as we grow. It says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, these leaders within the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, verse 13, until we all attain this unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God this maturity in manhood, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we're no longer tossed about to and fro by these different doctrines. Okay, so think about it. There's this already sense that unity has been given to us. Jesus has purchased this on the cross. He's made it possible for us to be so different and yet find commonality and find unity and find peace with each other. Okay, Um, He's told us to be eager to maintain that. Don't lose it. Hold on to it. Fight for it. Strive for it. Do whatever you need to on your end of things to be at peace with other people. But then he says, like, there's, there's more that needs to come. There's more attaining of this peace and unity that we can experience. And he tells us that within the church setting that we grow and mature together as we're taught from God's word, and we, we uh, experience this deeper unity. So you can think of it in terms of we're called to maintain unity, which we've been talking about a lot over the last couple of weeks. And we're also told to seek a deeper unity, to attain a more full unity 
with each other. And so we're going to talk in the coming weeks about how that's possible and what that looks like, okay? But we're going to try to answer two questions this morning. The first question being, why should we be so eager to maintain unity with each other while seeking to attain it more and more? Why should we be so eager to maintain unity with each other while seeking to attain it more and more? And this is where we're going to talk about those first three C's, these things that are true about us, that are consistent about us. If we're truly believers, these are things that we enjoy together. These are consistencies, commonalities that we enjoy together. They are our ground or our foundation for why we have unity with each other, okay? Number one is that we share this common calling. We have a common calling. If you're a believer this morning, you have a calling upon your life, and it is the same type of calling that is upon mine as well. He says in verse one, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We have this calling as Christians, this calling as believers to submit ourselves to the Lord as prisoners, to be his prisoner. As Paul describes himself, I a prisoner for the Lord. Now, Paul was practically very much a prisoner at this time. We told you that before that he's writing from prison, right? He is practically in jail. Uh, but he also views himself as in bondage to Jesus spiritually. So whether he's in jail practically or not, if he were to be released from jail, he would still consider himself a slave or a prisoner for the Lord. And he's urging these believers, he's urging us today to walk in a manner worthy of this same calling to which we've been called. What does it mean for us to have this common calling? Well, it means that we live our lives in submission to God's authoritative call upon our lives. We live our lives in submission to God's authoritative call upon our lives. We have commonality in what is shaping our life's direction and goals. There's a shift that takes place. When we become a believer, we shift away from living life the way that we have been living it, and we shift it towards living life now the way that God has called us to live it, right? When we go through the membership process and we ask those that are uh, considering membership, we ask for feedback on what that individual's life was like before Christ and what it was like after Christ, right? We want to understand and we want that individual to understand that the gospel has implications, right? That you were a certain way before Jesus. It's why you came to Jesus, because you realized you were in need of salvation. And then in coming to Jesus, things changed. Things changed, and and sanctification starts to take place, and your life looks different after salvation. Paul says, live in a manner worthy of this calling that's been placed on your life. You are now in submission to God's authoritative call upon your life, and you have commonality with other believers in that our life's direction and goals should be the same, right? So ideally, what should be taking place is that we would gather as the universal church in local church settings like this one. We would come together on a Sunday morning knowing that other individuals in this building share a commonality with us in that we want to live our lives under the authoritative rule of Jesus, that, that we're basing the decisions in this upcoming week For our individual life, for our family's lives, we are basing it and filtering it through a desire to submit ourselves to his authoritative call upon us. It shapes our life's direction. It shapes our goals in life. We walk under his lordship in submission to his commands with a willingness to go wherever he leads us. His calling is worth going to prison and dying for. 
Think about that. That's what Paul's telling us, is that this calling to follow Jesus wherever he leads us. We talked some in Revelation that believers are viewed in the end times as people who follow the Lamb wherever he goes, even into persecution, even into trials, even into difficulties, even into challenges. We follow the Lamb. We follow our shepherd. We go wherever he wants to lead us, realizing that he's going to take us through even the valley of the shadow of death. He's going to take us through those hard times with green pastures on the other side. And that valley may feel like forever. We were driving back from Florida yesterday, and it felt like forever to get home. I mean, we made tremendously good time going down. I mean, I had everybody's bathroom breaks on schedule. I mean, we were all going to the bathroom at the same time. We weren't stopping for any unnecessary stops. We hit all the stops we wanted to on time. Man, we got down there early. We checked in early. We got dinner ready early, and we were on the beach ready to watch that sunset. And then coming home, right? Everybody's on their own schedule, right? Everybody's drinking sodas at lunch, and we ate lunch early, which meant we had a lot of driving left to go. And one after one, people had to go to the bathroom, right? And we're stopping, and we're stopping, and we can't get very far before somebody else has got to go. And then we get close to Phoenix City, and my GPS starts uh, rerouting me because there is tons of traffic going from Phoenix City up uh, 185 and up I-85 uh, back home, and so we end up backroading it all the way through back country to get home. Right? It took, it took like eight hours to get home from from Florida, and it shouldn't ever take that long unless you're going to Disney World. Right? It took forever to get home. Right? And it may feel at times like that that journey through the valley of the shadow of death has taken forever. Right? And the difficulties and the challenges don't feel like momentary afflictions. Right? They feel like permanent afflictions. Right? But we're assured and promised that our shepherd takes us to the other side and he leads us to those green pastures. He lets us lay down by those still waters. We follow him wherever he goes. We're a prisoner of his. John Piper said that Jesus gave many warnings that following him was safe in the long run, but dangerous in the short run. Think about that statement. Jesus gave ample warning that following him was safe in the long run, but dangerous in the short run, right? That by identifying with Jesus, there is going to be times where we are persecuted and ridiculed and made fun of and separated from the things of this world. But in the long run, it's exactly where we want to be. Because in the end, when Jesus comes back, there will be division between those who follow him and those who do not, right? Hard in the short run, safe in the long run. This calling that's placed upon us. Remember what we've already seen in Ephesians. It's a calling that took place before time began. And the goal was very specific when Jesus called us. He called us to walk in good works, Ephesians 2.10 tells us, right? We were saved to walk in good works beforehand. And we are his objects of kindness forever. We saw that in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. That his desire in saving us is to make us his objects of kindness. He wants to show us kindness for all eternity, It's absolutely where we want to be, following this Lord, following this King, wherever he takes us. We're united in this. Salvation that has been granted to us, it's been granted to all of us in the same way, right? We've talked about this. How we get saved, how we stay saved, the things that we enjoy in salvation, these are common things for all of us that are believers. Now, it comes with sacrificial obedience, right? I tell our teenagers as they're growing up and learning to embrace their faith 
individually now and starting to come out from under their parents' wings as much, right? There is sacrifice when it comes to obeying Jesus. There are things that we don't do. There are things that we give up. Paul very much is identifying himself as a prisoner for the Lord. He's not living life how he wants to necessarily. He is living it for Jesus. He is seeking to live it in a manner worthy of the calling upon him. This calling is shaping his decision-making. I would ask you this morning, is following Jesus costing you anything? Is it costing you areas of your freedom? Not in a way that necessarily is bad, right? But as we follow Jesus, we are necessarily not following other things that we were previously following in our life. Right? Anytime we make a commitment to something, it shapes our decisions moving forward, right? Like Jonah's playing football right now at Trinity. And when you come up to varsity football, man, it starts to shape your, your life in a way that maybe previously your life wasn't having to be shaped, right? You can ask me anytime. I don't know when everybody else goes on vacation. I know when the Conaways go on vacation because they go during dead week, right? Because that's when there's no football practice, right? So I know when the Conaways are probably planning to go on vacation next year because I know when there's no football practice. It's true for the whole state of Georgia, not just Trinity, right? July 4th week, there is no football practice. And that's when you're told as a football player, hey, this is a great time to plan your family vacation, because you have committed to this team. You have committed to preparing for this season. And so it shapes the way that our Trinity families plan their vacations. I have no idea when James and Michelle are going on vacation next year, right? I don't know. They're not bound by this, right? When we bind ourselves to Jesus, we necessarily limit ourselves in other ways, right? We are following him. We're not following ourselves. We're following him, right? He's a prisoner of the Lord, and we have this common calling, or we should, When we gather as believers, we should gather looking around knowing that, man, we are so different, but there is one area where we are very similar in. We are striving to live as a prisoner of the Lord. While these momentary afflictions are guaranteed, and it's going to be difficult at times, I was sharing this with Jesse this morning. I was listening to a sermon at Red Oak Church up in Snowbird area. Um, They were emphasizing that the worst scenario can never happen to a believer. The worst case scenario can never happen. Now, you can think about what you perceive to be worst case scenarios and say these things have absolutely happened to believers, right? The worst case scenario cannot happen because the worst case scenario would be for us to be separated from God's love. And Romans 8 assures us that that cannot happen, that nothing can separate us from God's love, right? So temporarily, we may say worst case scenario is losing a spouse, losing a job, losing a child. Right? These aren't worst-case scenarios. They're bad-case scenarios. They're sorrowful-case scenarios. They are hard-case scenarios. They are not worst-case scenarios. Because as I lose a spouse, a child, a job, whatever that could be taken from me from this earth, what cannot be taken is God's love in the midst of that loss. It just can't be taken. I'm a prisoner of the Lord. Therefore, I, I traverse these difficult times knowing that in the long run, I am absolutely safe and preserved absolutely safe and preserved. And we have this common calling together as believers this morning. Number two, we share common convictions. Not only do we gather this morning knowing that we have a common calling, that we are seeking to be prisoners for the Lord, walking in a manner worthy of the calling, we do so with a commonality in the convictions that we have. Look what verse four says. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. A lot of commentators believe this was like an early 
Christian church creed that he's referencing here, this commonality in convictions, right? What does that mean? It means that we hold to clear biblical teachings about who Jesus is and the salvation he offers to us. We have commonality in our understanding of the personhood of Christ and the workings of the gospel. Now, believers split into denominations over differing views and perspectives about things in Scripture. But the churches that we can align with are common in the most important areas. So while we might not worship together on a Sunday morning because they believe differently about certain doctrines, we can absolutely feel united because of the commonality that we share in what we believe about Jesus and what we believe about the gospel and salvation. Like those are the, those are the key important things that we have to hold to, right? Things that are related to Jesus's humanity and his deity, that both are absolutely true. That he came here in bodily form, not uh, as a hologram, right? That he, that he took on human flesh. He truly took on human flesh and yet remained God the entire time, right? Which doesn't compute. Last week we got, or two weeks ago, we got into a little bit of math, talking about equations, right? You can't have 200%. You can't have 100% of one thing and 100% of another thing. And yet that's what we're taught from scripture. And so we believe it that he's fully man, fully God, right? And that he comes to bring salvation to us, that he lives the perfect life. He dies the sacrificial death and he comes back from the dead, right? If these things are true and we believe that they are, they unite us. They unite us. These, these beliefs unite us. This understanding of who Jesus is, this understanding of how the gospel works, that we're not saved by our efforts, we're saved by his work. Right? And, if, and if we can, uh, if we can uh, meet other believers that, that, or other people who claim to believe these things, then we can be unified with those people. Right? If there's commonality about who Jesus is and how salvation works, then we can absolutely be united with those individuals. But think about what the passage that um, Marcus was reading last week from Acts 17. There were individuals in that section, that passage, who did not have commonality about this, who did not believe uh, these things about Jesus. So while the, the disciples are showing up and teaching in these cities, and, and you know, uh, Marcus would have read about how individuals were getting saved, right? Men and women, different people coming and responding. There's a group of people who reject it, right? And we absolutely cannot be unified with people who do not believe in the work of Jesus, who do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Those things divide us. But we gather this morning and we have common convictions here. We believe certain things about Jesus. We believe certain things about salvation and how it works. This one body is a common existence as God's people. We've talked about how no matter who you are, no matter what country you were born in, no matter what culture you were raised in, you are part of the body of Christ if you're a believer. Jews and Gentiles welcomed together in one body. One spirit uh, is tied to our common origins in salvation, right? Right? None of us got saved because of the family we were born into. None of us got saved because of any good work that we did. We were saved because the Holy Spirit began to stir in our hearts, leading us to respond to the gospel that we were hearing, right? None of us got saved without hearing the gospel, right? There's a, there's a way that the gospel salvation works, and it works by people hearing the gospel, the Holy Spirit causing us to respond to that gospel. The one hope he references here is the common destiny that we have, that Jesus is coming back for us as believers. 
He talks about one Lord, one faith, one baptism. This is the same testimony. We have the same testimony. We confessed him as Lord. We put our faith in him. We were spiritually baptized into him, Romans 6 talks about. Commonality in our testimony if we're a believer. You know, here, to, to further clarify that and to kind of package it in such a way, we, we have a statement of faith. Um, and, I'll, and I'll tell you that the elders are in the early stages of um, cleaning this up because when we first planted our church um, 10 years ago, the, the Gospel Coalition was kind of pushing for church plants and churches to consider adopting the same statement of faith so that as you moved and relocated, you could uh, find commonality in churches in those areas that had adopted the same statement of faith. I don't think that ever really took off the way that they intended, and yet we have stayed strong 10 years with this statement of faith, and yet I've had membership meetings where I've sat down with individuals and they've wanted to you know, really talk about specific word choice in, in some of the statement of faith. And it's like, hey, these aren't exactly our words, right? So we adopted this from somewhere else. And so we'd like to clean this up and make it more personalized for us as a church, but uh, not changing our statement of faith as far as the things that we believe, but changing the way that it's presented so that it makes more sense and provides a little bit more clarity for people who are coming and joining with us at our church. But you kind of read through it and you see that these are important things that unite us, the, the, the beliefs that we have about the triune God, the Trinity, right? Uh, the things that we believe about number two, revelation, particularly the word of God, right? I love the sentence that's here uh, in that paragraph, and you can access our statement of faith on our website. Um, it says, the Bible is to believe, be believed as God's instruction and in all that it teaches, obeyed as God's command and all that it requires, and trusted as God's pledge in all that it promises, right? We believe in the authority of God's word. We believe that it has authority over our life, Number three, the creation of humanity. Uh, we believe certain things about how human beings were created as male and female, that gender is important, that identity is important, the image of God is important, right? The, the institution of marriage between a man and a woman is important. We believe those things because God's word says those things. Number four, the fall and how we entered into sin and why we need salvation. Number five, the plan of God and how God has been working for all time to save his people. The gospel, number six, how salvation works. Number seven, the redemption of Christ, what he does to accomplish our salvation. It says, we believe that by his incarnation, coming as a human, life, death, resurrection, ascension, Jesus Christ acted as our representative and substitute. He did this so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, he canceled sin, propitiated God, and by bearing the full penalty of our sins, reconciled to God all those who believe. By his resurrection, Christ Jesus was vindicated by his father, broke the power of death, defeated Satan who once had power over it, brought everlasting life to all his people. And by his ascension, he has been forever exalted as Lord and has prepared a place for us to be with him. The justification of sinners, that we can't be saved by our good works, it's by his, the power of the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Holy Spirit is given to every believer to work and move in powerful ways within us. The kingdom of God and how we live in that kingdom is an important uniting belief. God's new people, which we've been talking extensively here in Ephesians, that God unites Jew and Gentile, people from all backgrounds, to be his new people in the New Testament. We believe about baptism and the Lord's Supper, that these are demonstrations and examples of what has taken place inwardly. They don't save us. 
They don't save us. They are representations of what God has done in us. And then lastly, the restoration of all things, that Jesus is coming back and he's going to fix it all. These are things that we believe together here at this church, right? We have commonality in this. It's how we can be united because we believe the same thing about the most important things. We share common convictions. Number three, we share a common confidence. We share a common confidence. He says specifically in verse four, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. We have the same hope as believers. Same thing down in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God. So that knowledge of the Son of God tied to our convictions. Right? We believe these things. And then the unity of the faith is that there is unity in how we express ourselves towards those convictions. What does it mean? It means we hold to clear biblical promises about what Jesus does and will do this faith, this exercising of trust in Jesus. We hold to these clear biblical promises about what Jesus does and will do. We have commonality in our hope and the expression of our faith in that hope. We can be united here because we have this common hope, this common confidence that Jesus does certain things and will continue to do certain things. Same faith, same hope. Which leads to number four. These things are true about us if we're believers. Common calling, common convictions, common confidence. And then that, therefore, should lead to us sharing a common conduct. A common conduct. So back in verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I mean, the more our church embraces this, not just a few individuals, but every single member here embracing these character traits, striving for these things, eager to be these things. Think about the type of unity and fellowship and joy that's experienced here. If not just a few people are trying to be humble, but if everybody's striving for humility, not if just a few people are trying to be gentle and patient, and enduring with each other, but everybody's striving for that mentality. It's that Philippians 2 mentality, where if everybody's trying to put the needs of others above their own needs, then everybody's needs get met, right? Everybody's needs get focused on and met. We're to live our lives in conformity to his standards of holiness. We have commonality in the way we are to process how we make decisions and take action. We're called to conduct our lives in a way that's keeping with the gospel. Is our life worthy of being called a Christian life? Think about that question for you yourself. Is your life worthy of being called a Christian life? We're to remember who we are as we live this life out. Like it or not, my kids bear a responsibility and a burden of being the principal's kids at Trinity, right? The burden and the the responsibility there is that eyes are on them differently, I think, than just your average kid that's there. Whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. I'm just telling you it is, right? Principal's kids aren't supposed to get in trouble, and if they do, 
right? Then the rumors start about how, well, this kid just gets away with stuff because he's the principal's kid, right? So there's a burden. There's an expectation that comes with being the principal's kid. Now, there's great privileges that come with that too, right? Because dad can go pull you out and take you to lunch and bring you back and, and nobody really says anything, right? There's privileges. My dad was my administrator when I was in school, and there would be days where dad said, you want to go fishing today? And I'm like, why would I not want to go fishing today, right? And so we didn't go to school that day. We went fishing instead. There's great privileges that come with being the principal's kid, but there's also burdens and and responsibilities that come with it too, right? And I talk to my kids about this, that, hey, you have a level of expectation that really exceeds the average kid because you're my son, because you're my daughter, right? Um, It's the same with being a Christian, right? Man, tremendous privileges, tremendous blessings that come with being a Christian, but there's also expectations and responsibilities that come with that too, right? That we're to turn our back on our old way of life and we're to live differently moving forward, right? So there's privileges and responsibilities. And Paul says, live your life in a manner worthy of your calling. My understanding of the privileges I enjoy as a Christian should motivate me towards the responsibilities that come with it too, right? I want my kids to love being uh, the children of the principal, I want them to, to relish those privileges and opportunities that come with that. Um, and I want that to help motivate them to live up to those expectations that come with it too, right? To, to appreciate all that comes with being the principal's kid and have it motivate them to never forfeit that, to never uh, demean that, to never take away from that. Think about us as Christians and the privileges that have come to us. We were chosen when we didn't deserve it. We were adopted and given the inheritance of a king. All of our sins have been forgiven. Righteousness has replaced our failures. We've been sealed by the Spirit to keep us saved. We have an eternity of increasing joy awaiting us. The responsibility now is for us to make his greatness known to all of creation by the ways we conduct our lives. Man, if you're saved, you have been given so much. Live in a manner worthy of that calling. Live in such a way where God's greatness that you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy forever, live in such a way where his greatness is made known to the rest of his creation. I tell our our, our kids and our youth, because I think you're in that stage right now where it's no longer good enough for you just because your your children's teacher, uh, your children's class teacher, or your youth leaders are telling you what you're supposed to be as a believer. That, that you want to know the whys behind some of that, right? And, and if we're not careful, uh, our kids reach a certain age where things just start to feel restrictive, right? And it feels like Christianity and the church is just always telling me what to do and what not to do. I'm going to tell you guys, as your pastor, I can't think of one thing, I can't think of one thing that the Bible calls us to do or not to do that is not very, very good for us. I can't. I can't think of one thing. I can't think of one thing that we are called to do or not to do that is not very, very good for us. Now, everything in this world and every whisper from the enemy would tell you that God is not good and he wants to hold you back and he is withholding things that are for your enjoyment. It's what he did in the Garden of Eden, right? But I'm just telling you, I can't think of one thing. Now, Everything in your life right now that you're being told by your parents you can do and can't do feels restrictive and it feels not good. I can't think of one thing. I can't think of one thing in Scripture that God calls us to do or to not do that's not good for us, 
right? He is a good God and he calls us to good things. And so we submit ourselves willingly to a God whose commands are not burdensome. This is the grounds for our unity, common calling, common convictions, common confidence, a common conduct. What specifically are we told here about this common conduct? How do we maintain the unity we have while seeking to attain more of it? Well, we talked extensively two weeks ago about being humble, being gentle, and being patient. These are the three key things for us to be if we are going to maintain unity and attain more of it. Now, we've talked a lot about this idea of pursuing unity in the context of if there is disunity, there's a responsibility to fix it. But I want to shift focus a little bit now and say that Well, that's absolutely true. If there's disunity amongst believers, there's a responsibility to see that fixed. There's also the responsibility for believers who are in unity to experience more unity with each other, right? It's not just, hey, you know what? I'm not disunified with anybody, so I must be good, right? Paul says, I want you to attain this more and more. Man, I love the fact that the way that we've broken our C groups up for this next year is going to give some of us opportunity to spend time unifying with people that we haven't spent as much time with before. Because this is biblical for us to attain a deeper unity with each other. Not just to be satisfied with not being disunified with people, but to be eager to not just maintain unity, but to attain it more and more. And we do so by being humble, being gentle, and being patient with each other. I was thinking yesterday driving home about humility and I was thinking just what that really means. And I, and I, and I had this thought to myself that humility is really a willingness to see myself as I oftentimes choose to see others. My willingness to see myself through the lens that I oftentimes choose to see others, right? I'm, I'm great at being critical of other people. I'm great at seeing their flaws and their mishaps and their, their shortcomings. Not always great about seeing those in myself. But if there's any way to take that perspective and flip it back to yourself, man, that's when you start to achieve humility is when you see the things that you see in others are absolutely true about you. I mean, that brings you to a state of humility because you realize, you know what? I'm not perfect either. I have the same shortcomings, the same mishaps, and my hope and expectation is that that person would be gentle with me and long-suffering with me and forgiving of me, right? That's what, I, that's what I want people to do towards me, and so therefore I absolutely need to do that towards others, right? Going back to that golden rule mindset, I treat others the way that I want to be treated. Humility is seeing myself as I oftentimes choose to see others. It's that Philippians 2 mindset of considering others more important, It's what I put in my notes. It's the opposite of the shotgun mindset. The opposite of the shotgun mindset. What do I mean by that? You've all been in those settings before where you're carpooling with people, right? And and, and there's rules about calling shotgun. But the goal is to, to be able to sit in the front seat, right? Nobody wants to sit in the back seat. Nobody wants to be stuffed in the back. And so you walk outside, you're carpooling, and whoever can say shotgun first gets to sit in the primary seat. Too oftentimes we adopt that mindset in all walks of our life, right? This shotgun mindset of, I want to be first. I want to be served. I want the best. I want the preferential treatment, right? And, and humility is the opposite of that. Now, this is little, but I've tried to be very practical even in not calling shotgun 
when I'm carpooling with people. Not because that's right or wrong, but because it's an active way for me to remind myself that I want to be, be last as much as possible. I don't want to always feel like I have to be first. Um, and I'd gotten into a bad habit of me and this other guy always fighting over the seat when we would go out for lunch together, like playfully, like we're friends. But um, man, I, w- I want to be, be willing to be last, right? I don't want to have a shotgun mindset throughout my life where I feel like I deserve. Listen to what John Piper says. This is, a, this is a long quote, but it's a really great and helpful quote, I think. The more highly you think of yourself, the more quickly you will think you should be served. If you have a disposition of lowliness, it won't feel so inappropriate when you're not treated like a dignitary and when the fruit of your labors are slow in coming. If you have seen the majesty of God's holiness, you know your own minuteness and sinfulness, and you don't presume to deserve special treatment. And if you've seen the magnificence of God's grace, you know he will give you the strength to wait and will turn all your delays into strategic maneuvers of victory. If you have a disposition of lowliness, it won't feel so inappropriate when you're not treated like a dignitary. Most of us think we should be treated like a dignitary. We would never say that, but we certainly feel that. And he's saying that when we have a humble mindset, when we don't feel like we should be treated certain ways, right? We don't, we don't expect certain types of treatment. I have to forsake my own self-centeredness along with the idealistic expectations often placed on others if I'm to maintain this mindset of humility. Being gentle is a fruit of the Spirit to treat others in this way, Galatians 5, 22 through 24. Our church elders should be exemplifying this, 1 Timothy 3, 3. Not violent, but gentle towards others. We're to be patient, long-suffering, tolerating each other, I mean, our marriages are a beautiful way to model this. It's where men and women are accepting and putting up with each other over the years in love, right? Enduring with each other. John Piper made mention of the fact that the fact that we need to endure with people, the fact that Paul even tells us to endure with people implies that we're not going to be around perfect believers and not every, everything's going to be fixed before Jesus comes back. That we're always going to have to be enduring with each other because we're always going to be struggling with sin. Right? And we have a responsibility to forgive each other and to endure with each other. How do we maintain this unity, this common calling, these common convictions, this common confidence, this common conduct that should be uniting us? How do we maintain this? With an attitude of humility and gentleness and patience with each other. Our identity truths for this morning. Every Christian shares a common calling, common convictions, and a common confidence with other believers. Number two, every Christian should share a common conduct with other believers as well. I want to read for you, uh, in closing, our member covenant. Our member covenant, which is always posted in the back on that fancy board back there. Um, underneath it, it says a church united together. These are our ways of life, conduct-type ways of life that we've identified in Scripture that ought to be uniting us. And if we are living this way within this church as membership, uh, as members of this church, man, it unites us because we're all uh, following this common purpose together, right? It says, as members of Sovereign Hope Church, we affirm this covenant with one another by God's grace for our good and ultimately for God's glory. Having both been led by the Holy Spirit through divine grace to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior— 
and having been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on the profession of our faith, we covenant together to glorify God by delighting in Him as our treasure above all things, and by learning and teaching others to hold fast to the hope of Christ's return. Together we will draw near to God in worship as we hold fast to the hope set before us and joyfully submit to the Word of God as the all-sufficient authority for our lives. We will gather together in our common union in the Spirit, and we will engage the lost in our common love for the gospel so that they too may turn from darkness to light. We will participate regularly in the celebration of the Lord's Supper as we remember Christ's work on the cross and anticipate his future return for his bride. Together we will spur one another on to love and good works. We will meet with one another consistently, pray for one another regularly, and serve one another selflessly. We will strive to love each other purely by recognizing the love of Christ and the work of the Spirit in the lives of others. We will edify one another with our speech and encourage one another with our examples as we share each other's joys and bear each other's burdens. We will consider each other's interests above our own by humbly and gently confronting one another, receiving correction from one another, and pursuing reconciliation with one another as we seek to obey our Lord and remain unstained from the world. Together, we will guard and protect the doctrinal unity and purity of this church. We will adhere to our church's position on primary theological issues as laid out in our statement of faith, and we will not be divisive over secondary issues. We will test the instruction from the scriptures given by the elders of our church in a biblical manner because we we have to contend for this faith. We can never shift from our common convictions. Jude 4 talks about, hey, don't let people creep in and shift you from these common convictions while humbly submitting to their God-ordained role of shepherd in our lives. We will honor the commands of Scripture and the leadership of this church by assuming individual responsibility to know Christ deeply and His Word richly in a reproducible way. As new believers are added to this church family, we will work together to teach them all that Christ has commanded them to do. We will give cheerfully and generously to support to the support of this church and the aid of the needy and the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. We'll seek to grow together toward biblical unity as long as we are in fellowship on this earth. If we move from this local body, we will unite with another local church as soon as possible where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. May the grace and the love of our sovereign God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all as an anchor of hope as we await the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's these behaviors, these type of conducts that unite us here. The application As much as it depends on you, be actively in unity with others. And if for some reason there is no peace in a current situation, don't let it be due to you. Romans 12, 18 says, as much as it depends on you, you be at peace with other people. And let me again encourage you to shift your focus. Don't just be satisfied with not being disunified. Man, be eager to attain a deeper unity with each other. Right? Even people that aren't like you, because we share this commonality. Right? So you may, you may experience people in this church that you don't have anything earthly in common with them. That's okay, because you have the most important things in common with them. A common calling, right? common convictions, a common confidence, and hopefully a common conduct that you're pursuing as well. Read one last verse, First Peter chapter 3. Verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We praise you. 
we thank you for calling us into your family, into your body. God, we thank you for awaking in us spiritually in such a way where we can submit ourselves to your authority, where we desire to submit ourselves to you. We thank you for that common calling. We thank you for enlightening our minds so that we can see and understand who Christ is and what the gospel is so that we can share in common convictions, to be able to read and understand and know your word and to believe it, to have common confidence in the promises that you've made. God, I'm asking that as we continue to move forward as a church that you would unite us in our conduct. God, that we would together be striving and eager to maintain the unity that we have that was made possible by your son's death on the cross that we would maintain this unity and even seek to attain a deeper unity with each other by being humble and gentle and patient with each other. God, help us to be willing to endure, to bear with one another in love. As we rub each other the wrong way, as we do things that annoy each other, as we say things that are hurtful, God, I pray that we'd pursue reconciliation. But God, help us not to be satisfied with just being Uh, not disunified with others, but God, give us a desire to attain a deeper unity where we pursue a love for each other that transcends whether we're um, experiencing commonality with earthly things. But God, help us to see each other through the lens of these spiritual things that we have in common. God, continue to unite us here at this church. Help us to love each other well. God, help us to realize that by doing so, we are displaying for the rest of creation, even angelic beings. We're displaying for them your greatness and your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.